This is the Stories of Transformation podcast, and I'm your host, Bakta Shahadi. Each week I dive into deep conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardship, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to expand perspectives and share voices of diverse identities. Today, I'm in conversation with Jason DeLeon, who's an anthropologist, author, and activist with a meaningful mission to tell stories of those fleeing their homelands in search for a better life. Also, he is the recipient of the prestigious MacArthur Genius Award for his work documenting migrants trying to make it into the United States. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we discuss Jason's latest book, The Land of Open Graves, which is a culmination of six years of research to uncover the reality on the ground on the U.S.-Mexico border. Jason shares some of the countless artifacts that he found in his research through the Sonoran Desert, a landscape so treacherous that the Border Patrol don't even monitor because it's unlikely that migrants will survive the trek through the desert. We also discuss the current situation unfolding on the U.S.-Mexico border, which is a sobering reality of the human trafficking industry. Finally, Jason shares his outlook on the future of clandestine migration and what we can do to make the world a better, more welcoming place for all. If you enjoyed this important conversation about migration, please share it far and wide. And as always, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. So without further delay, I bring you Jason DeLeon. Jason DeLeon, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to be in conversation with you today, Jason. I'm really excited about what's going to surface between us. And I think the work that you do is fascinating. I think what you do is important. I think there's a lot that we can dig into, whether it's your writing and your research and your lived experience and your background. Um, but the way I'd like to kind of start my conversation with you is to ask you, in your own words, how do you define who you are? I think if I had to define myself, I'm someone who does not like barriers or silos or genres. I like to think and be in the world in this kind of multimodal, eclectic sort of journey where I'm constantly trying to find and experience new things and then take those things and have them help inform the directions in which I want both my work and my and my life to kind of take. And so I, I think I'm someone who's constantly searching for new experiences and new types of inspiration. And those things inform, I think, my way of being in the world. Now, let's talk about your upbringing and kind of maybe some experiences or aspects of your life that kind of shaped and formed who you are today and the work that you do? I think probably one of the biggest influences in my life, at least to where I am now, is the fact that I was an army brat. And so my parents were both in the military for, for 20 plus years. And I spent a significant portion of my childhood bouncing around you know, living in different countries, living in different places across the United States, and being constantly exposed to new people, new geographies. In some moments of my life, I was in a sea of other people of color. And then in other moments of my life, I was the only person of color in school. And so I think that um, having those experiences really shaped my way of being in the world, how I connected with people, Actually, I've met a lot of anthropologists who were army brats, who I think found themselves in, in sort of similar situations. But I would definitely say for me, you know, growing up in South Texas, six miles from the U.S.-Mexico border, growing up in Germany, growing up in Philadelphia, in Long Beach, California, um, moving around and 
and having to reinvent myself or reintroduce myself to people was a really transformative kind of thing that that has stuck with me. And I think that in a lot of ways, it's made me, you know, the anthropologist that I am today because I'm still doing that. I'm still going to new places. I'm still introducing myself and trying to make sense of communities and contexts that are oftentimes, you know, quite unfamiliar. So help us understand what some of the guiding questions are that helped you kind of write your book, The Land of Open Graves. And and how does, how did, like, what did you learn from that experience of writing your book about humanizing the migration process for so many people trying to make it across the border into the United States? The number one goal for me is to do right by the people who have trusted me with their stories. That is like my number one concern. Anything else after that, if people read about immigration, if they learn something about anthropology, that's all very secondary to are the people that I've worked with for many years, the people who I've, who I've trusted and who have come to trust me, are they going to be proud of this book? Are they going to feel like they are accurately represented in this book? That's, you know, one of my core commitments. But it's one thing to say that, and then the actual doing of it, you know, that's a whole other matter. And I think one of the things I learned during the course of writing that first book was, one, just about being humble. I mean, I think I'm already, I would hope, a pretty humble person. I'm a first-generation college student. I'm not supposed to, wasn't supposed to go to graduate school or, or become a professor or any of those other things. And so I come to the work, you know, from not a place of privilege. And so I think that, you know, I came to the book also very much in a very kind of humble manner with the, the weight of, oh, well, now I've got to sit down and try to sketch out the lives of these people who are so important to me, but in a lot of different ways, it can go south. I can fail to capture the emotion of the interactions or their other stories. I can turn them into caricatures that are far removed, perhaps, from their own experiences. And so for me, the, the book writing process was the first time that I felt that kind of really great responsibility. I mean, I had felt it before with the writing journal articles, but there's something about a book-length monograph that's both, I think, really frightening and and really liberating. But during the course of that, you know, I really reinvented myself during the course of writing that that first book. I went from being an archaeologist who then wanted to become an, an ethnographer who studied living people, who then was charged with writing this book. And I think I began the book as a very traditional academic, and I came out of the other end of it thinking about the world and about my own place in it and my own role as, a, as an anthropologist in a radically different way. The book writing process changed my perspective on the writing process itself. It changed my ideas about what public scholarship could look like, who the audiences could be, but then also it really instilled in me this new sense of freedom where I felt like there are no rules. And part of that was because I was so burnt out by the time I began working on the book. I had been a professor, an assistant professor for five years at that point, and the whole tenure process was write articles, apply for grants, teach. And it was mostly kick out these articles one after another. And it was working at this pace that 
I didn't find to be healthy. I didn't find to be very stimulating. And so when when it came down to write the book, I thought to myself, this book could make or break me. And that's fine. As long as I write the book that I feel the most proud about and the book that feels really true to me, which I had never had that experience before. And so writing that first book completely changed my life in a whole bunch of different ways. And, you know, I'm working on a second book right now and trying to remember some of those lessons as I go into it. But I'm also learning that writing this next book is also changing me in all kinds of different ways. I'm a different person than I was, you know, six, seven years ago. And so I do find that writing, I think it's a moment of personal growth and reflection and a moment where, you know, I get really excited about the potential for improvisation and, um, you know, trying new things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really great. And what's interesting about this process that you're kind of talking about is, you know, writing is mostly about what your relationship to the topic is and how you want to highlight certain aspects and delineate certain aspects and really honor the people that you're trying to tell stories about. So what would be really interesting at this point in the conversation is to kind of figure out and understand the border that exists between the United States and Mexico and many parts of it that's really regimented, but there's sections in which that are completely open. In particular, there's one segment that's right along the Mexico-Arizona border that allows for a big chunk of land to be completely open. And there's a desert that resides there whereby, you know, authorities assume that, I think you at one point said that prevention is due to deterrence, meaning that people won't come into the United States from this point because the desert, which is 70 miles in length, will essentially deter them because there's so much loss and death that kind of occurs along the way. Now, what did you learn in your experience by being there? What did you learn was was happening to these people and kind of like how it changed people. How did that kind of play out? The book really, Land of Open Graves, is really about this border patrol policy called prevention through deterrence. And as you state, you know, it's this idea that if we leave parts of the U.S.-Mexico border open and other parts heavily fortified, the path of least resistance will be these open zones. But if they're deadly to cross, the environment itself will be an impediment, will stop people from from moving. You know, and the Border Patrol in the beginning knew that it was going to put people in harm's way, knew that it would be dangerous, that people would die. But the idea was that if enough people died, word of mouth would spread and people would, would stop coming. And one of the things that I learned really early on was everybody knew that it was dangerous, that there's a potential for death, and that was yet not enough of of an impediment because people were starving to death. People were watching their children starve. People were living in communities where their own lives were, were at risk. And so you hear this happening right now with, with migrants coming up from Central America where people will say things like, I would rather die crossing Mexico or die in the Arizona desert than die on a street corner in San Pedro Sula. Because at least in the desert or on the train tracks in Mexico, I've taken my own life into my own hands and I'm giving myself a chance. Whereas in in a place like Honduras, much of that is out of your hands and the violence is surrounding you and you just, you don't know when death is going to come, is going to come knocking. And so, you know, I learned that people knew this and yet they didn't have a choice, but, but to, to keep going. 
But then one of the things, too, that really struck me early on was the folks that I was working with and writing about, you know, I think about it in this way now. They happen to be migrating, as so people call them migrants, but you cannot define their lives as migrants. You know, they have these rich, important histories, and the migration process is just one part of that. And so I really wanted the book to be not a book about immigration or about the border, but I wanted it to be about people who happen to be migrating, but people who I would hope could be relatable to someone who's never had to migrate, who's never had to struggle to put food on the table, because that was how I came to know them and came to care about them was these individuals who, whose stories and lives moved me. And one aspect of that just happened to be the fact that they, that they were migrating. And so I, and I think that in general, you know, that should be the goal of a lot of work on these kinds of kinds of issues, whether it's someone who's been incarcerated or someone who's migrating, you know, those things don't define those people completely. And so incarceration, detention, migration, those are elements of people's lives. And I think we can create more empathy and understanding if we can kind of zoom out of that and go, okay, I too could be incarcerated. I too could be a migrant someday. And how would my story kind of fit into this, this category as opposed to this idea of those people fall into this category of migrant or refugee and therefore their lives and experiences must be radically different from my own. And what's really important to kind of share at this point in the conversation based on what you just said is that, you know, it's always important to remember that people don't have the choice to determine where they're going to be born the choice of the parents they're going to be born to, the religion that they're born into, the language that they're given when they're born, the name even in which that they're given when they're born. There are many things that we don't get to choose. But when a person is in a place of dilapidation, the fact that they have a sense of agency over the trajectory of their lives is the most powerful thing. And it'll lead a person to go through heaven and hell to get to where they need to go because at least they don't feel like a victim to their own circumstances. And that's something that I think your work captures, and it's a story of my family. And it's a beautiful thing that needs to be understood as it pertains to understanding the power of the human spirit. Because however you perceive the world, whatever your worldview is, whatever your origin story of human beings is, that is the thing that's brought us to where we are today. You know, it's such a good point. And oftentimes I have conversations with people who learn about what I do and they want to talk about migration or about migrants. And oftentimes, you know, I think from like an American sort of privileged perspective, there's this idea of, oh, these poor migrants, I want to pity them kind of thing. And I think it's sort of my job as a, as a writer to be like, these people don't want your pity. They live difficult lives, but they don't live pitiable lives. They live very much happy lives with, with agency and they don't feel sorry for themselves. They are they are living the best life that they can live, and they don't want pity. They don't want to be understood from that kind of lens. They want to be understood as people who are important, like all of us. I think we are all important. And um, you know, I think that's my job as an anthropologist, as a writer, as someone who who makes public facing kind of work, is I want to introduce you to those people, not to the migrants, but to people who have these experiences and who live complicated, interesting, beautiful lives, just like the rest of the world. They just happen to be, you know, as you said, born in a different place in a different time or, you know, whatever the circumstances are that leads people 
you know, to end up having to leave their homes. Now, as somebody who documents this journey that people attempt, and I say the word attempt because not everybody makes it, what is it that you kind of find along the way as you're kind of gathering artifacts, taking pictures, writing stories, taking notes? What are some things that you kind of find along the way that kind of humanize this journey for all of us and for you in particular? I think it's important to understand that the things that happen in the Arizona desert have been happening for the history of our species. I mean, we have survived because of our ability to migrate. And I think oftentimes people look at whether it's Latin American migrants and refugees or people coming from China or the Middle East or Africa, people who aren't from those communities, I think, tend to look at those groups through the lens of race oftentimes, which I think is really disruptive to helping us understand this issue as as a human issue. And so you see it in the United States all the time in terms of when people say, well, my ancestors came here through Ellis Island and they worked really hard and these new people here, they just want to hand, you know, and all that is, is the ignorance that comes with the lens of race, with the kind of whitewashing of American history. And, you know, I really want people to look at what's happening in the Arizona desert and to be able to say, okay, let's think about Ellis Island in the late 1800s. Let's think about the Mediterranean right now. Let's think about leaving East Africa 100,000 years ago. Let's think about all of these migrations as intimately linked and part of this longer shared historical process. Um, and that's hard, I think, because we all very much, I mean, myself included, we see the world through particular lenses and it can be difficult you know, if you grow up in a racist society like the like the United States, it's hard not, I think, at times to to think about issues of race. And then as soon as you look at something like migration from a, a racial lens, you automatically start to compartmentalize or to like rank, okay, who are good migrants, who are bad migrants, you know, who comes from scary countries, who doesn't. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned during this process is, is both helping myself to see that broader global phenomenon with a deep history, but then also to help the public connect those dots as well. You can go to Mexico right now, and there's a rising anti-immigrant sentiment there against Central Americans. You pick a country, and people are looking at things through the lens of nationality, race, religion, and then making these value judgments about who should come and who should not and who should stay home. What I really want to do is kind of drill down right here, Jason, talk about you know artifacts that you collect in the Arizona desert that made you laugh, that made you cry. Help me understand some of the things that you kind of saw that made you realize like, this is something worth documenting and telling people about. Sure. Well, you know, over the years, we ended up collecting thousands of objects that migrants had left behind. And this is everything from empty water bottles and food wrappers to band-aids, first aid kits, up to, you know, wallets, Bibles, family photos, clothing, every pretty much imaginable thing you could fit in a backpack, we have probably found out in the desert. And I think that the things stick with me in different ways. I think about the kind of seemingly more mundane things like the water bottles, you know, there's a million of them out there. And so people oftentimes will say, well, 
what's like the really interesting stuff or the stuff that really moves you. And for me, the water bottle always moves me because I know that so many have died for lack of water and that that object could have held life or death for a particular person. You'll just never know. And so when you see, when you just see thousands of them, for me, that's a really kind of impactful thing. But there are other things too that, that make me sad, but that also make me, you know, make me giggle. One thing I think is really funny that I found once was a wallet in the Arizona desert and it had this person's, you know, driver's license, some phone cards, a few other things. But they maybe had gone to like Roswell, New Mexico at some point before they had attempted this crossing. And they had one of these little kitschy illegal alien IDs. It's like a driver's license with, you know, a, a green alien on it. And it says illegal alien. And it has like, you know, these funny little statistics about, you know, where, where they born, Mars, you know, height, three feet, whatever. And I just thought that, you know, I mean, people are funny. An immigrant, a migrant carrying this in the desert in his wallet, for me, that's a that's someone who is hilarious, you know, and is finding humor even in these kind of dark moments. There's a couple other objects that I think about, and these two objects are actually both currently on display in a permanent exhibition at the Smithsonian, the American History Museum. One of them is a, a button-up shirt that was found in a backpack in Arizona that just has the Statue of Liberty all across the back, this large depiction of, of the Statue of Liberty, which for me really, you know, drills home the point that the Arizona desert, for many, is Ellis Island. This is our new Ellis Island, where, where millions of people have attempted to come to this country and have had myriad of experiences through this difficult terrain. So that's one thing I, I sort of think about. And there's another one that's also on display that is a a large metal picture frame that says number one dad on it. And someone had taken out the picture and left the, um, the frame in a backpack and they left the backpack behind. And I think about that oftentimes because I always ask myself, you know, who is the number one dad? Is the number one dad the person who cannot stay at home in Mexico or in Guatemala or Honduras and watch their children starve to death and so has to leave? Is the number one dad the person that stays home and watches their family struggle and potentially die? You know, I think about that parent and many other parents who are either bringing their kids with them or who are separating themselves from their own children in hopes of providing them with a better life as, you know, this kind of ultimate sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that I myself have never had to make, but I also know that if it came down to it, it would be a sacrifice that I myself would would make, knowing full well that what can be good for someone monetarily or health-wise isn't necessarily the best thing for that for the for the family or you know or complicates family structure if not disrupts it erodes it and fractures these lives so it, you know it really for me represents the fact that people are making these decisions for their families and there is nothing easy about that and so i i always want to try to put myself into that perspective into that mindset to better help explain to others why would you leave your family behind or why would you bring a child into the desert? And it's this idea that people don't come to these decisions easily. This is a struggle. And they know full well that there's not going to be some true happy ending. You know, the American dream, if you can even achieve it, comes with so many costs, both personal, financial, cultural. You know, it's, it's just not an easy thing. That really has always stuck with me. 
as you kind of talk to people who are making this trek, putting their lives at risk, putting their children's lives at risk, what is it that they tell you about what America represents to them and for them? What are some of the things that kind of surface when you ask this question about them? Many people believe that like these immigrants, migrants want to come to the United States and they want to become American, that they want to come here and, and they want to be U.S. citizens. And when you talk to people, you know, they have way less lofty goals. You know, they will say to you, I just don't want my kids to starve or my kids to die of medical neglect or my kids to die on a, on a street corner in Central America because the gang violence is so out of control. You know, people just want to be safe they, and they want to not struggle every day and to just try to live as healthy a life as, as possible, mm. which I would hope anybody could understand that, you know, people just don't, they don't want to die. They, at least they don't want to die those kinds of deaths. And for those, for those reasons. And I think that when the anti-immigrant people come back at me and they say things like, why can't they do it legally? And all these, all the political and social excuses that we have for, for not being empathetic. I just tell people like, just try to put yourself in their position for just a, a few moments and think about how desperate you must be, how dire your circumstances must be if you are willing to put your, your life and the life of your children at risk to get to some new place. If you know that you could die in the desert, that your kids could be taken away from you in a detention center, that you could never see your country or some of your family members again, and yet you're still willing to come. That's not about money or whatever idealized dream that we have that, that, that America is, you know, it's, it's about this like fundamental desire and need to survive. Mm -hmm. So help us understand, put some shape to this, Jason, for us, help us understand some numbers, how many people make this trek, how many people die from what I understand. There's an economy now because there's so many people making this trek that there's now so many millions of dollars being invested in terms of supplies that people can buy along the border to get across. Put some shape to this for us and help us understand some of those details. Human smuggling, clandestine migration, it's a billion-dollar industry globally. Hundreds of billions of dollars a year are spent on smuggling fees, on falsified documents, on getting rides from smugglers, on things like the equipment that you might need to survive a trek through the Arizona desert, camouflage clothes, hiking boots, you know, camouflage water bottles. It's this huge, huge industry that um, supports this phenomenon. And millions of people try to come to the United States every year. Thousands of people have died while doing it. You know, in Arizona alone, that's probably where we have the best numbers. You know, you're averaging between two and, and 400 recovered bodies a year, but those numbers are probably much higher. I mean, we know that thousands of people have died since the mid-1990s because of these border policies. So you've got millions of people trying to come, thousands of them dying. You know, and even like right now, we're on track this year to have the highest number of apprehensions of clandestine border crossers that we've had in 20 years. I mean, the numbers are spiking right now, and that's because things are bad in Honduras, things are bad in Central America, and people are trying to save themselves. At the same time, these people who come, undocumented people who live in this, in this country, they also contribute 
hundreds of millions of dollars to the U.S. economy, if not more, if not billions, in terms of the labor that they provide, the low wages that we pay them to do work that most Americans don't want to do, the taxes that they pay on pensions and other things that they'll never be able to draw from. Um, so, you know, it's both a billion-dollar industry to move people, but then also we greatly, as Americans, benefit from from this whole process. And this doesn't include the hundreds of millions of dollars that we spend a year on border security to stop this flow, even though we know that border security is not very effective, and nor really is the goal to stop people from coming. Because, you know, the running joke is, we hate them at the U.S.-Mexico border, we allow them to die at the U.S.-Mexico border, but once they're here, we turn a blind eye to who's working in the kitchen, we turn a blind eye to who is working in these meat-rendering factories and elsewhere, because we know that those folks keep prices low for goods and services. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really important to kind of just point out there. And so so how do you see this playing out as a matter of policy, Jason? Is this something that's going to be perpetuated going forward? Help us understand what the future of this of this process looks like in your mind. It's only about to it's about to get way worse. In terms of? In terms of the numbers of people fleeing and trying to come here to places like Canada. Mm. You know, we are living right now in the midst of a global migration crisis. And it's kind of like the the frog in the boiling pot of water. We can't really see it, but it's coming. And, you know, climate change right now, I mean, before it, it was purely economics and then it was economics and it was gang cartel violence, at least for Latin America. Um, you know, you've got different things destabilizing places in other parts of the world. But just even from a Latin American perspective, now you've got poverty, political instability, corruption, gang and drug cartel violence, and now the devastating and growing impacts of climate change. And so Honduras being a good example, in 1998, Hurricane Mitch devastated Honduras. Thousands, hundreds of thousands had to leave the country. Many died. And the country has still been reeling from that hurricane over two decades later. Honduras has just been hit by two back-to-back Category 4 hurricanes, devastating places that were already barely hanging on. And now you see this new, that's why we're seeing the spike in migration now. It's this combination of, of, of factors. And as we're seeing people, you know, fleeing, you know, Africa, parts of Mexico from increased droughts, climate change right now is the new thing that is just adding fuel to this to this fire that we're going to have to deal with. Um, it's not going away anytime soon. And there's nothing you can do to stop it that involves the construction of a border wall or more border security. It's really trying to handle climate change and all these other issues, both in C2, in these communities, but then also trying to understand that people are coming, they will continue to come, and we can either be the country, the country of immigrants, the country founded by immigrants, who is going to try to find ways to be humane, or we can be the country that puts babies in cages, separates children from their families, and sends people back to these countries where they're going to risk risk death. Mm-hmm. That is the moment of reckoning that we are all going to have to, to, to start to deal with in our lifetime. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. I think it's important to kind of just hear what your perspective is, given the fact that you really think about this in very deep terms. It's really sobering to hear that. So thank you. As we think about coming to a close here, I like to kind of ask all my guests, you know, one final question and, um, How would you go about answering the question, 
What is your message for the world? I guess my, my message for the world is, is we should try every day to find more empathy for others. Whether that's people in our neighborhood, people in our school or at the workplace, or someone who lives a, a world away. I think that, that we need that. Mm -hmm. We need more empathy every single day. And, and we need to find ways to connect with people who are seemingly removed from, from our lives, but who in many ways are connected to us in, in all kinds of manners. It's trying to find something in common with those folks and some sort of shared understanding. Because right now, I think we're being, we're being consumed by political divisiveness. We're being consumed by racism and xenophobia, homophobia. And I think it's our jobs as individuals to fight against that. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Jason, thank you for the work that you do. And uh, thank you for being the light in the darkness. Bakhtash, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esaud. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation group. In this group, we discuss topics related to human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.